We're back on What the Funk. I was out last week. I wasn't able to do a podcast, so I'm actually going to double up today. But first, we have Craig Heilman of Arbo. Get into him in just a second and all of his background. But I just wanted to say, last weekend, I went to Oregon. Have you ever been to Oregon before? I have not been. Well, no, I've been to Oregon briefly for a wedding. I was I was there for a wedding last weekend. I mean, you talk about a place that, you know... Whatever you picture Oregon to be, it's exactly what it is, right? All the coffee shops, very granola, very farm to table. The wedding was great. The weather was awesome. Had a really nice time, and that sort of led into the July 4th weekend, which which was a blast. So nice little break. We all need those every once in a while, and here we are back working, podcasting, diving into the middle of the summer heat. So Craig... We met a few weeks ago just after Nigel Gorbold came on my podcast. I think you guys had a listen. We talked a little bit of business and uh, invited you to come on. So excited to have you on today. I don't know a ton about your background or about Arbo, but I know that you're passionate about the company that you work for. You're based out of Washington, D.C., which is a little bit unusual for people we have on the pod. So we'll get into all that stuff. But since our listeners don't know who you are, who are you, Craig Heilman? Who I who am I? Uh, well, thanks for having me, Jeremy. I'm delighted to be on the podcast and recognizing that I might not be the usual in terms of uh, being a, a Washingtonian. So I look forward to kind of exploring that a little bit. You might have some questions around that. Um, uh, I guess in terms of who I am, I, I mean, I'd, I'd identify myself as, a, as an entrepreneur. I mean, I guess first and foremost, professionally an entrepreneur. I'm kind of a general manager uh, as a lot of entrepreneurs tend to be kind of master of no trade, you know, job of all <laughs> trades, master of none, if you will. Although most of my business experience kind of came, you know, I was on the sales and marketing side. Um, personally, I'm, you know, I'm a husband and father, I think like you, um, I, I'm a proud veteran of the United States Navy. So that's a part of, a part of my identity. Awesome. Um, you know, I see some, uh, some sports, uh, pictures behind you. So I, I guess I'm, I'm a fan of the Baltimore Ravens the Washington Nationals and the Virginia Cavaliers. So there's an interesting mix there. I grew up in Baltimore and, uh, but now I guess I'm, I'm kind of, I've been in DC since 2004 and met my wife here, settled down here. So I guess I'm, you know, likely or not, I'm a Washingtonian now, but I, I kept the Ravens. Uh, I, you know, enjoy the Nationals. The Orioles are good again. So I'm, I'm back being an Orioles fan as well. Really, um, really good. Yeah. Really good. Kind of, kind of fun. We're on the other side of that, uh, with the Nationals going to be, going to be another couple of years, uh, but uh, we're, we're hanging in there. Um, other than that, I, you know, uh, I enjoy doing outdoor sports, like skiing, like live music. I, I'm in, and I'm, I'm a very amateur drummer, I guess. It's kind of another you know, passion of mine. So I don't know if I guess where, where do you want to start with all that? Well, first of all, I think I have to end the podcast. You did say you're a Baltimore Ravens fan. Me being a diehard Patriots fan, I'm not sure if we can do this, but um, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Ravens fans are pretty passionate. And we actually had some guests this past weekend um, from Baltimore and, and sort of had all that fun. There's like a healthy level of respect and dislike at the same time between Ravens fans and Patriots fans, almost like we're division rivals, but uh, they got a great franchise, man. Well, in my family, it's kind of a challenge because most of my family's from Pittsburgh. Oh, so I wow. remember the Steelers for a pretty well. When Baltimore lost their team, you know, I was, I was kind of young, but I remember it. 
Uh, when they lost their team, you know, I kind of rooted for Pittsburgh after that. And then that became kind of a real problem <laughs> once, we, <laughs> once we got what we were, you know, we're then the Cleveland Browns, I think. So, so, uh, um, I'm used to having that, uh, you know, little bit of a family rivalry. I mean, that's what it's like in the Northeast too. Everything's so congested, right. That you could, like my wife is from York, Pennsylvania, not too far from Baltimore. When we go back to that area, we typically fly into Baltimore. Her dad lives in Pikesville, which I'm sure you're familiar with just outside of Baltimore. Um, but it's like you, you talk to somebody in York and there's an equal likelihood of them being a redskin, sorry, a Washington commanders fan. I'm like that. Formerly the Redskins. It's hard for me to break that. Um, so you've got the Washington fans, you've got Pittsburgh fans, you have Eagles fans and you have Ravens fans. It could be any of those, right? If you're from a place like York or Harrisburg or really sort of the center of the state and in Pennsylvania, it, it sort of depends on family allegiances, but same thing in certain areas of new England, right? Depending on where you are in Connecticut, it's Red Sox fans, it's Giants fans, it's Patriots fans, it's Celtics, it's Knicks, right? Which is which is some of the beauty of the Northeast, right? Um, out here, like everybody's a Broncos fan, everybody's a a Nuggets fan, everybody's an Avalanche fan. There's nothing. There's no professional sports teams within like ten hours in any direction that you go in. But out there, you go ten hours, you're talking about completely different allegiances. So it's one of the things I miss about the Northeast um, and some of that kind of fun camaraderie and and banter, but let's, let's stick on Baltimore for a second. So I, I actually really like Baltimore. Um, when I was in college, I had a girlfriend who lived in North Baltimore, like just off of I 83, as you go North of the city and, and developed a little bit of an affinity for the town. Um, talk about what that was like growing up in, uh, in Baltimore. And then did you go to Annapolis? Is that what happened with your Naval career? No, um, not, not, not quite, but, uh, the getting, getting in the Navy was sort of an interesting career twist for me. And, uh, hopefully you have a lot of listeners that are kind of getting into their careers in oil and gas, et cetera. And, and, and so some of these twists might be of interest, but, um, so I, I started out in finance. I went to school for business and I went back to Baltimore after school and worked for a company called White Mason. That was a brokerage firm and that's what oh, I yeah. in Baltimore. Yeah. And uh, that was great. It was interesting. I liked it, but I just kind of hadn't thought, I, you know, I didn't do a lot of traveling when I was young, kind of, um, you know, most of my life was kind of Baltimore centric. And I, I sort of, you know, kind of have that see the world, join the Navy. That was the commercial at the time. But even more importantly, that was kind of the, the last sort of tail end of the first Top Gun generation in the Navy. <laughs> so, you know, if you watch Top Gun too many times, uh, it can lead you down to the recruiter's office. And I, I kind of, um, you know, seeking, you know, again, a little bit of leadership, a little bit of adventure. Um, I left finance and, and, and went in, you know, a totally different direction, which uh, kind of surprised my mom and dad at the time and, 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 uh, um, and, and went to the Navy, went to flight school uh, and, uh, and had a, a really great career in the Navy. Um, but also, you know, as that was happening all still still about business still thought i'd get back into business someday uh and so when i finished in the navy went back to business school and and kind of restarted restarted my business career but it was it was interesting to watch top gun again and think about all the kids out there that are, <laughs> are going to kind of go down the same maybe go down the same road which is good for the navy because we certainly need to have uh people interested in serving the military at the 
you know, it's a great, it's a great career choice. You, you, you learn things that you never thought you'd learn. You see things you never thought you'd see. Uh, it's a chance to really, you know, really just to develop, you know, as a, as a, as a whole person. And, uh, and of course, yeah, you, you know, it's a, a chance to get back to your country and serve. So all those things. Yeah. So you mentioned, so you were in the Navy and, but you also went to flight school. So were you literally one of those guys that was like, taking off in planes and landing planes on these big naval ships in the middle of the ocean? So, yeah, so I was a naval flight officer, and I flew an airplane called the S3 Viking that we had that was carrier-based, and it was used to hunt subs, and it was used to do surface surveillance, reconnaissance. It was used to do air-to-air refueling. We were kind of an organic refueling asset for the battle group, the carrier battle group. And so now when I was in Iraqi Freedom, um, you know, it's kind of the first wave of Iraqi freedom in 2003. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we would do is we would, we would take off with a strike package. We would take them in to, you know, in country, essentially, we would make sure they were topped off as, with fuel because after the first couple of days of the war, you know, the, all the sort of pre-planned targets were, you know, already, were already gone. And, and, and really what the strike aircraft were doing are trying to support troops in contact on the ground and mm. so the most critical part of that was gas because the longer they could stay on station the more chance they would have to you know to be of use to the to the troops on the ground and so gas was the was the was the was sort of the, the critical the critical enabler so we would drag them in gas them up we would we would book back to the ship land and then meet them on the other side and that was kind of what we did day in day out you know for the whole for the whole deployment but uh um, yes, S3 was a cool, a cool airplane and it was uh, a lot of fun. Um, and we had a crew, normally a crew of two, sometimes a crew of four. And then all what we were, what we were doing. But, I mean, that sounds awesome, right? Like that fe- feels like a scene out of a, out of a movie or something where you get to play soldier, but you were doing it in real life, which is super cool. And, and obviously I appreciate, we appreciate your, your service to the country. So, so you took a different path, right? You, you were at Lake Mason, which, you know, big finance company based out of Baltimore. You decide to go into the Navy, spend a bunch of time there. Then you get back. Um, what did you do when you got back from being a, a Naval officer? Well, I was, I was lucky because then kind of experienced civilian life. Uh, you know, prior to going in the Navy, so I kind of knew what that was about, uh, um, and, uh, had some ideas, you know, again, around getting back into business. And so go back to business school full time was kind of the natural thing for me. I still got my, my last duty station. I was, I was serving in a place called Office of Naval Intelligence. I'd moved to DC, you know, met my wife, um, to be, and, uh, and so I went back to business school full time at Virginia, which is why I'm a Virginia Cavaliers fan. And, um, and then, and started to think about what type of business I could start, you know, start to kind of think about mm. entrepreneurship and, and, um, I, I, I started a business while I was in business school. It was my first startup and had a lot of start. It didn't have a lot of up, um, which can sometimes, <laughs> which can sometimes be the case, uh, you know, in entrepreneurship. And I learned a lot from that and I ended up leaving, you know, when I, when I graduated, I went to DuPont, um, into their kind of executive development program. And, um, I got to do something super cool there because I ended up managing their military Kevlar and Nomex business and Nomex mm. is the material, uh, that, that flight suits are made out of, you know, it's the fire resistant material that we make flight suits out of, you know, NASCAR drivers, their, their race suits, et cetera, and all kinds of industrial applications for flame resistance. Uh, Kevlar of course is used in body armor. 
Yep. And, um, and, 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 you know, those are, uh, two, you know, iconic brands at DuPont and, and, and really incredible advanced materials. And so I spent a lot of years at DuPont and that kind of was my exposure to the oil and gas industry. Uh, you know, DuPont mm. is around for 250 years. It's one of our <laughs> older country, you know, older companies in America. They for a long time owned Conoco, um, you know, when they wanted to sort of vertically integrate their entire supply chain, um, you know, they were early into bio-based materials and, um, all kinds of different, um, things. So, but I was real familiar with kind of the oil and gas supply chains because of course that the, uh, you know, like a lot of advanced materials, you know, what's in, you know, what starts it all is, 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 you know, oftentimes a petroleum based product. Oh yeah. And, um, and, and so, um, so kind of understood that industry, um, uh, from, from being at, at the pond and, you know, ultimately got back into the industry after a couple, couple, couple more twists and turns. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is honestly like what I love about podcasting is getting into people's stories. Cause, cause everyone's story is different. Like I can see how it got there. You understood the value obviously of, of petroleum and, and literally gassing up jets in Iraq, right? You saw it firsthand and produced petroleum products and refined products working for DuPont right? Despite not being in the traditional oil and gas hubs, you still found your way into the industry. So, so after DuPont, like what year are we talking about and then what? Well, we're, we're now kind of coming up around 2010, you know, the kind of the turn of that decade. Um, I had had some, uh, some children come into my life, uh, uh, you know, blessed with some children. Um, and I was still, um, you know, thinking about entrepreneurship and, 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 uh, you know, I had that big company experience. DuPont wasn't really reinvesting in the military side of the business, which is where I was really, really focused. Um, uh, they were moving into other industries. Um, there's since been a lot of, you know, uh, restructuring of, of that great company. And, uh, I actually went into government because I also, you know, kind of have the urge to serve again. I did miss serving. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and being in DC, that's kind of a, you know, we're a company town somewhere in some way, like Houston, like Houston is, but the business here is government. And so I went, I got a really, really cool gig at the U.S. Small Business Administration because at the time they were super focused on helping veterans transition back. Like I mentioned, I'd been in civilian life. I had a sense of what that was like. It wasn't that scary to me, but for a lot of that, it's really scary. You know, they've never done anything but wear the uniform and, and a lot of the jobs that they have, you know, don't really translate very well. It's not many sniper jobs, you know, in civilian <laughs> life, um, not to be kind of use a morbid example, but, um, so I, I got the gig running entrepreneurship development programs to help military, uh, veterans become entrepreneurs because wow. they kind of had sort of that disposition, right. That, you know, not risk adverse, like to kind of, you know, be general managers, um, uh, understand how to lead people understand operations, processes, et cetera. So vets make great entrepreneurs and in fact become entrepreneurs at a much higher rate than non-vets. So the government to its credit said, we ought to be, we ought to be supporting that. We ought to be actively trying to help vets start businesses. And I got a chance to lead some of those programs as they were emerging at the SBA, uh, which was really fun. And to close the loop. So what happened with that is I was spending a lot of time traveling the country, looking at all these great businesses that vets are starting. And again, I still have that itch. I want to, you know, I want to get that, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, and, uh, 
I had served the Polish, I had served at the Office of Naval Intelligence with Chip Mollenhauer, who's the CEO and founder ah, of Arbo. Ah, okay, there we okay, go. Because of exactly how did this get to Arbo? Um, well, in a roundabout way, but I had served with Chip at the Office of Naval Intelligence. And when I went off to business school, you went off to law school. And, uh, and he took his turn in big law and was doing energy regulatory stuff and, okay. and kind of grinded and out one of the big, you know, one of the big firms. Also, he comes from a family of entrepreneurs. He's thinking that, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. And again, a little bit of it is a veteran mindset. You spent a lot of time kind of, you know, in the chain of command and, and kind of doing what the machine needed you to do. And so a lot of vets kind of like to, you know, be their own boss after, after that. And I think Chip had a little bit of that. Um, it, anyway, so as I'm traveling around looking for a great business, you know, or, or looking for a great idea, sometimes the limitation to entrepreneurship is just sort of like, you, you can't come up with the idea yourself all the time, you know? Um, but that shouldn't stop people because maybe you can find somebody else that's got a good idea and you're willing to kind of take the risk and be part of the journey. And, uh, and be, so you need lots of, you need people to start stuff, but you also need people to join. You need people to join those ventures too, that are willing to kind of, you know, be part of the, uh, those early days that can yeah. be the ones that are, you know, the most scary, but also the most fun. And, uh, and so it turned out that the company that was, I thought the most interesting one being started was the one that was happening in my own backyard because Chip was starting it. Yep. And, um, and because he was doing all this energy regulatory work, working on these big infrastructure, uh, projects at the time, a lot of them were nuclear when there's still some nuclear, you know, um, things happening, you saw that there was an awful lot of data, an awful lot of risk involved in how the regulatory domain intersected the business domain and the impact sure. on these assets and all these businesses, but that a lot of that data wasn't really being harnessed and utilized in the way that you would think it could be. A lot of the decisions were being made based on, you know, the highest paid person's opinion or whatever the law <laughs> firm was saying. Um, and, uh, I just thought with, you know, now we're talking 20, you know, 2013, 2014, you know, where kind of the big data technologies are really starting to mature and there was a lot of data out there just waiting to be better, you know, better accessed and better put to work to make business decisions. And, uh, so that's, so he, you know, he happened to live on Capitol Hill and I had moved to Capitol Hill and that was unbeknownst to the both of us because we, you know, we went our separate ways after serving yeah. an O&I. And then we kind of found each other again because we moved to the same neighborhood. And so we had a lot of late night discussions about starting companies. And I told him, I said, Chip, I said, like, don't ask me because I'm the last person you should ever ask if you should leave your, you know, leave your, you know, your secure, stable job and start a company. Because I always say, yes, yeah, so absolutely, you should do that. Um, uh, and, uh, and he ended up doing that. I was able to be, you know, an early advisor and investor in the company when he was doing the early friends and family Very kind cool. of round that are friends, families, and fools, they call it in entrepreneurship, uh, the three F's. And, um, and I said, Hey, listen, if this thing gets going, I'll quit my job and, and at the, you know, at the small business administration and, 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 and join you. And, and fortunately that, you know, this, this startup had some up and, and was able to start hiring people. And I got to be, I got to be one of them. And, you know, and I knew, you know, again, ship, you know, had a lot of the characteristics you go, you know, you look for in any business leader, but particularly an entrepreneur, I mean, I think number one, you know, you got to have kind of the idea. You got to have the, the intelligence and the, the fortitude to go after that idea. Uh, you got to be tenacious, you know, so he's, yeah. he's a tenacious guy, he's persistent. Um, and you got to have integrity, you know, because it's just, 
if you don't if you don't if you don't inculcate kind of values into the very first you know team that you put together and you know if you're not able to communicate to your customers that are taking a chance on a startup you know which isn't you know the oil and gas industry is pretty traditional right they you know it's the whole maxim that you never you know you never lose your job hire an ibm kind of a thing right you know, they're not you know you get a lot of and you know this from all your time you know uh carrying a bag in the oil and gas industry and making the sale that if they haven't heard of you, it's generally tough to, you know, yeah. if somebody's not recommending you. It's a little bit tough to close the deal or actually not close the deal, but just to get in the door. You know? Oh, yeah. So, uh, com- the completely. It is. It is. And, and, you know, there's a couple of, of quotients that I like to use. Um, one of them that my friend Justin Bucci gave me, which is, um, you know, if you have the will, I'll teach you the skill. And I think will and skill is are two very important traits for any entrepreneur and certainly for a business leader. And, and additionally, um, we talked about this a few weeks ago on, on one of the more recent podcasts with the, the Spira Data guys that, that came on. They have something literally on their wall that's called the say-do ratio. Um, you know, if you're skewed too much toward the say, and there's not enough toward the do, that's a problem. Um, and you lose credibility really fast. So just do what you say you're going to do. And I think those are very important entrepreneurial skills as well. Yeah. I love the say do ratio. We have a good friend of Arbo who happened to be a West Point guy, uh, not a Navy guy, but we don't hold that against him at all. He's a, he's a big <laughs> customer of ours too. So uh, but he loved the, the safety ratio. He introduced me to that term. I think that's a great one. It's uh, the best. For sure. And, and I, you know, I'd like to say, uh, you know, plan the work and work the plan. <laughs> it's just another thing we like, we like to say, you know, a lot of times you plan the work, but you don't, you spend a lot of time planning the work and not working the plan. Kind of got to do it in reverse uh, some, sometimes. Yeah, no, I agreed. And beyond that, while we're throwing these phrases out there, <laughs> um, I think it's a Mike Tyson phrase, right? Everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. <laughs> and then what? Right? How do you how do you then bounce back? How, how do you then persevere? Because it's going to happen in business. The best laid plans always go to hell, right? How, how do you persevere when you take that first kind of real real tough shot in the nose? Are you asking or telling? <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, I'll tell you. know, in, in our experience, I guess that when we got punched in the face, just to bring it, you know, to, to you know, an actual experience we had, you know, we we were fortunately a lot of our value proposition is around helping uh, with project development, right? And you know, yep. initially for us with pipelines, and um, because we were able to bring in all this regulatory data and turn it into business intelligence, and in this. You know, in this particular case, business intelligence for what's my cost of schedule going to look like on this project? Because I know that the regulatory environment's changing and getting through these regulatory milestones, whether it's the environmental review, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, or um, you know, certificate the certificate process for 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 well, interstate pipeline. That that landscape would change. It's not it, it's not an automatic anymore. You know, and this is going back to the shale boom in 2013, 2014, and we started to see uh, just a lot of there a lot more litigation, a lot more opposition. Yeah, and uh, and so you know, this regulatory data that was kind of maybe over in the regulatory department or in the legal department, but might not have been you know hands on with the project team. Uh, or the senior leadership that was, you know, making the final investment decision for these projects, um, 
you know, that was really became key. And that's really why we were able to see in the initial phase of our business. Well, then that, that kind of all tailed off a bit, right? We got through that build cycle and, um, and then we had the whole pandemic thing, right? And mm. so we had a couple of pretty, pretty big headwinds and, uh, you know, in that, you know, our initial core value prop wasn't as relevant because we weren't made projects and oil was minus $40 a barrel for a couple well, of days fun. there. That was fun. Really fun. Um, and we were sort of looking at each other saying, well, you know, now what? Um, and we were fortunate enough to have enough capital that we could reinvest in product development while we weren't really going to do a lot on the sales and marketing side because people were just stuck, right? Yeah. And um, that's when we kind of went from gas into the oil side and we were able to kind of build and launch what we call our liquid commerce platform, which we can get into. But um, so we, to the point of that is like, we get punched in the face, like you got to figure out where you can make some progress, you know, once you kind of feel your, you know, hopefully you got punched in the face and get knocked to the ground and you could uh, kind of just, um, you know, um, get back up quickly. But, um, so now, I mean, now it's kind of a punch in the face and now, I mean, now it's all kind of come for full circle. We've got, you, you know, I, I don't know how many hundreds of billions of dollars, right. Coming into the marketplace to do what, to build infrastructure again and to yep. have projects. And so to us, that's, really feels like it's come full circle. We've been in business for, you know, going on nine years now. A lot of it is just getting up and staying in the fight. You know, just keep staying in the fight, right? So every day that you're still in business and still winning business and still thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow, um, uh, it's, uh, it, it gives you another chance to, to get where you're ultimately trying to go. Um, and, uh, and so we feel really good about just our staying power in the marketplace and especially more so even uh, our ability to keep our original customers. You know, we still have our original customer. Um, uh, and and, and you know, once we get a customer, they, they tend to stay with us. Um, and uh, um, so that's just, just one one example. So who, who are Arbo's customers? And if you were to, to s- summarize it in a nutshell, what do you guys do over at Arbo? Well, so let me start with what we do. So essentially we sell four things. We sell data, software, research, and consulting. And we kind of okay. do that in different combinations depending on the customer and the need. And, um, and all of that is about, you know, kind of taking regulatory data and turning it into business intelligence, something you kind of act on, you can build into your decision loops that you can automate and kind of improve your workflow with all those kinds of things. Uh, and we do that. I mean, ultimately, our vision is like, and this gets a little bit back to the military ethos around, you know, being patriots and kind of being proud of America and wanting America to succeed, particularly in terms of energy independence. But we want to help sustain America's ability to build infrastructure, right? Um, we've talked a ton about that. It, we get into the DC thing, but I mean, it has been amazing to see people in DC having conversations about permitting reform like you can't get (laughs) you can't get something further from the front page than permitting reform if you roll the clock back a couple of years uh and so uh that that was a pretty interesting experience for chip and i and the rest of the team that are here in dc but that quarter our grade like we want that we got to be able to build this stuff right and we got to be able to do it on a timeline and and we got to be able to do it to budget uh if we want anybody to finance it and uh um and, and so, um, we, you know, we, we were in that loop. And so 
we, 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 you know, it's, it, it could be a midstream company that's building a project, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so midstream as a core, you know, midstream pipeline operators, primarily whether they're a gas or oil, uh, whether they're talking about emerging pipelines because they want to do something with hydrogen, right. Or they want to, mm. they want to do, uh, uh, CO2 real pipe. Uh, so that's a very core segment to us and we'll help them on the front end of that as it relates to developing something, um, that tends to be with data and sometimes more on the consulting side. And then on the, you know, once it's in, once it's in, uh, you know, kind of in the ground and operational, more on the optimization side. And that's where kind of the software comes in where hmm. they're able to continuously look at contract roll-offs on their pipes or their competitive pipes, or they're able to, um, uh, you know, look at utilization, things like that. So, uh, so that's one side of it. On the other side of it, the other big segment is kind of on the trading side. So if you're, mm. if you're trying to move physical commodities as a, as a, as a trader, you know, one of the big trading shops and you really care about the impact of infrastructure on the overall supply demand picture in terms of what types of positions you might be taking, or, you know, there's a regulatory driven event that's disrupting the market, like report goes down and you're trying to figure out like, well, when's it coming back online? And, like who actually determines that like who has to decide you know we can get involved in all that because we sort of have that expertise um we kind of know where to wrangle the data um you know mountain valley pipeline every everything about uh how that has worked its way through finally to ultimately be passed into a law that the mountain valley pipeline must you know must go in service you know we've been that's been something we've been working with our customers with since the very beginning uh, in terms of trying to anticipate what might happen in the courts, anticipate um, what might happen as it relates to um, cost and schedule, you know, mm -hmm. for all the normal things that go on with the construction of a project like that. Um, that's, that's kind of generally who we who we who we work with. We're you know forward looking, really looking at transmission because that's going to be a whole entire. I mean, that's where the most critical need is going forward it's very similar to building a pipeline except it's probably even worse as it relates to all the stakeholders that have to you know that have to uh uh get aligned and and because it's so much more of a state and local sure type thing than than you know uh, a federal and that's that's where a lot of attention is and where a lot of the probably the regulatory kind of reform or restructuring has to occur to make that successful no, this, this is cool. So you, you provide the data, you provide the analytics, you provide the, uh, effectively the consulting to put companies in the position to be able to garner funding for fairly large projects, right? Which, which is cool. I mean, it, it sounds like you're, you really get a first, you know, a firsthand view into some of the larger intrastate infrastructure projects that are happening, happening from a, a pipeline and gathering perspective. I mean, it sounds cool. Uh, yeah, we, we think it is. Again, I, I know, maybe others didn't, but now everybody thinks it's <laughs> a little bit cool just because they, you know, at least they have some sort of sense of, gee, okay, you know, uh, we need energy infrastructure and what does it take to build energy infrastructure and what does that involve from a, you know, market business dynamics perspective and what does that involve from a government perspective and how does that all have to work together and so it's a it's a pretty good lens on, you know, what American industry has to do generally to continue yeah. to evolve and to compete. Um, you know, and, and you know, and obviously energy enables everything else. So if we can compete there, you know, then 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 
then, you know, we can compete downstream of all that by making all the products, you know, all the iPhones that rely on these <laughs> critical materials, a lot of which are, you know, oil and gas based at the end of oh, the yeah. day. Oh, yeah. For sure. So you're you're based in DC and I, I love DC. I actually remember going there when I was, I think, sixteen, um, for something called Presidential Classroom Scholars, where you you spend a week in DC with a bunch of other kind of high achiever types throughout the US and and it was awesome. Like I got to meet with state representatives from New Hampshire, got to walk around all the businesses, you know, all of the big buildings in, in the Capitol tour of the White House, um, got to go on sort of the the Senate floor, like really, really fun stuff that that made me appreciate everything that goes down in, in the unique city of, of D.C. where there's really nothing else like it um, in the U.S. Or, or in the world. But there you are in D.C. and you're doing a lot of business that's outside of D.C., right? So do you find yourself on airplanes going to places like Houston, going out to Pittsburgh, um, going to Dallas, going to Denver, like where is most of your business based? Uh, yes, we, you know, Houston is number one for us and, sure. and you know, thankfully Southwest can get us there pretty quickly and most <laughs> of the time, most of the time pretty reliably. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I'm going out on vacation next week and then the following week is Houston and then the week after that is Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Yep. Uh, no surprise there. Uh, we've got a pretty, uh, a pretty good, um, group of customers in New York that are more on that finance, right? They're, they're trading their hedge funds that are, you know, oil and gas focused. Uh, those, those are the, that's kind of the trifecta, you know, and a little bit of Denver. Um, and, um, but that's, that's our world for sure. Um, hopefully, you know, we like it, you know, DC again, it might not be ideal for running into a prospective customer, you know, at a social function or something or, at, you know, on the golf course or something, but it, it is nice to be able to bring some of that perspective, both directions. Right, particularly as you know, folks have got a little bit more divergent in their viewpoints, and they might not interact as much with others to sort of, you know, kind of understand the different viewpoints. Uh, particularly as something as controversial as sometimes oil and gas can be, um, it's it's nice to be able to, you know, to kind of see all sides of that, and in in our own small way as we interact, be able to share perspectives. Right. Yeah. Um, and when DC is at its best. When DC's at its best, you know that's happening all the time, right? People are open-minded and they're they're having conversations, whether they be professional or they be casual, and 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 talking about these issues. And um, and so we we like we definitely like being here, um, and we like being in Houston too. So so we try to split we try to split time. Well, you you definitely like humid places if you like DC and you like Houston, man. I've sweat through numerous suits in both of those cities, so I I, pre- I well, appreciate the air conditioning. We still have to wear a suit anymore, right? That's one of the things that's changed in our in our world a bit. Like ninety percent of the time, I, there's still a couple companies that you know you you got to make sure that you dress up nicely. Um, when you come in, not ties anymore, but but still maybe a suit jacket or a, or a button down. But for the most part, you know, especially in this whole digital wildcatters movement, you can just dress like like we're dressed right now and, and be fine. Um, w- Want to shift a little bit towards sort of the future? Um, as you you mentioned hydrogen, right? You mentioned some of the new projects that are going on. Where do you see the future for energy? 
in the United States. And then you're sort of on the forefront for this, helping companies get approved for projects that will, I guess, transmit and, and uh, move product. Do you think it's in something like hydrogen? Do you see more of a movement on the geothermal, on renewables? Like, Give me sort of a sense of what the industry energy as a whole could look like in the next five, 10 years. Well, I just started the kind of the macro piece of that because I, I see two sort of big macro trends that if you did have both of them, I would be worried, but we now sort of have both. So I'm pretty optimistic. And I mean, because ultimately we've got to sort of redevelop entire markets and industries, right? As we make this sort of energy transition, yes. energy evolution. One of the, I was really fortunate to work at DuPont and have that be where a lot of my, you know, training and insight, you know, sort of, because they have that 200 year history of, of doing not business development, but whole market development where you, yeah. you, 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 you did them, you did the R and D, you did the basic R and D, then you did the application development, and, you know, the materials development, and then you had to go out, you know, now you've got something that you can supply, then you had to develop the whole entire demand side of that equation, right? And that had to yeah. happen over 20 or 30 years, right? Um, and that's sort of the cycle we're on now, and it takes big players, right? So you got to have the, you know, the super majors engaged, and you got to have government engaged, and we didn't sort of have all of that happen. Um, and I feel like a lot of that's coming together. So one, so so one, I guess, pillar of this is that I, I think there's going to be more consolidation, and so that some of these big guys are going to keep getting a little bit bigger, and but but because the sort of the money in terms of the government, the government sponsorship and the money is there, the ability to make sort of these big bets on market development for technologies that they weren't necessarily as focused on maybe 10 years ago and hydrogen and CO2, you know, CCUS come to mind. I see that as a really good trend and there's probably going to be some more consolidation on that side. Now, I'd be a little bit worried about that from a market perspective, right? Because, you know, you, you start to see, you know, you start to see some of that innovation slow down once you, yeah. you know, once 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 you get a little bit over consolidated. So I'm um, the other thing that I've been really happy to see is all the startup activity and the money going into the innovation side of it for not the big players. And let's assume the government money is mostly going to go to a lot of the big players. Sure, right? they're the ones that can they're the ones that can more easily come to the table for that type of a you know. And DOE doesn't want to make ten billion dollar loans to folks that you know are, are super high risk, right? That that's true. Sure. It's, it's, they got to steward that taxpayer money to some extent, right? Not always, you know, doesn't always work out, but but pretty pretty good hit rate over a long period of time. Uh, so seeing that money coming in on the private side, be the traditional kind of venture route, coming back to clean tech, and you know, is really important and I think encouraging because you know there was a there was a huge clean tech wave in kind of that 06, 05 time, and that really played out, and, and all the venture yeah. money somewhere else. Yep. You got those two things together. So I see a world where you have that slow and steady market development on some of these technologies that we already know about. And we, and we do get to the finish line on, it's going to be 20 years, but we get there. And, and if there is a hydrogen, you know, economy and there is real, you know, real carbon capture and sequestration and some of these things that we're talking about. But I also see that there's going to be breakthrough. Uh, there's going to be some breakthrough innovation that we have no idea what it's going to do, but it's going to totally change the game because there's because there's so much activity there. So I, I don't know what exactly that looks like, but it just it, it, it makes me a lot more optimistic than I was ten years ago. Uh, um, you, you know, you no know, think, thinking about 
you know, the, the space over the long term. Yeah, I, I'm with you. It sounds like energy addition, right? If I were to, if I were to sum it up, and and also forms of energy that you know, even a few years ago, we didn't consider as as viable, which will become very viable. So I, I'm intrigued to see how it how it plays out. And then, of course, you'll be on the the tip of the spear from the regulatory standpoint, understanding what the government's doing, and then helping companies comply with that, and then and then ultimately put them in position to get the level of financing that they need to to take on some of these massive projects um, like you guys are doing. So pr- pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I um, think that's the third component I didn't mention, but they, there does need to be restructuring. You know, there needs to be structural change that'll come along with all that, whether it's led by the existing you know, major players, whether it's because it has to be adaptive to an innovation that we're not thinking about, you know, breakthrough technology, or it's just sort of the slow methodical work. But, but yeah, the power markets and the way that they work and, you know, there's got to be change there as well. Um, and I think that's going to happen. I think, you know, we've made great progress in just the last two years towards at least everybody recognizing the problem and, and, and sort of working towards it in pretty, pretty bipartisan way from where I sit, you know, yeah, bipartisan way. Yeah. I mean, and, and to bring it back to Arbo a little bit, like we talked about this when we, when we first met and chatted for about 45 minutes, a a few weeks back, you really need at least as far as your business development type people to be consultative because you're not really selling a product, right? Sure. You have some products that you can sell, but you're selling somebody that can see a vision right? That can bring a lot of different pieces together. And it's, it's fairly unique, right? So I see how somebody in your role and the team that works for you um, has to listen <laughs> really well, has to be creative, um, and, and has to be able to shift gears relatively quickly, um, which I'm sure makes for kind of a fun business environment for, for you and your team. It's, it's a little bit unique. You're not pushing one thing. You have to, to really understand the client needs the regulatory environment, um, what financing companies are looking for, understand capital markets. It's cool. I'm just putting it all together, but this is not the type of job where you go in and you're pitching one thing every day. I'm guessing in the course of two hours, if you're on three or four different calls, they're all very different. Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good problem and a tough problem at the same time, as you, as you mentioned, because it is a you know it's kind of a knowledge based sale and. And even though our customers might look alike, you take two pipelines that look very similar. One of them might be all about kind of the efficiency part of it. And might have, one of them might be all, you know, all about kind of the growth part of it. And they kind of yep. look at things different ways. One of them might really want to do a lot of automation and digital kind of transformation inside of their enterprise. One of them might want to do none of that and just kind of get as much cash, you know, you know, you know, sure. as much cash off as they can to return to their shareholders or their unit holders. So, uh, yeah, I, I think we'd like it to be, you know, to be uh, cookie cutter, same widget for everybody, and let's just sell a million of them. But that, that's not that's not the not necessarily the problem we're we're solving. Nice. So before we run here, I like to put my guests on the spot. Hey, puppy, how you doing? Um, I like to to put people on the spot and do a little bit of rapid fire. So I'm going to say a word or a phrase, and you have to say the first thing that comes to mind. All right. The best place to get a crab cake in Baltimore. Angelina's on Hartford Road in Parkville. Nice. nice. I think it's still there. <laughs> well, it was at least. Um, 
Ray Lewis. Uh, best linebacker that ever played the game. Nice. I'll accept that. And now finally, cocaine in the White House. I saw that headline. <laughs> um, I I thought we were on to different like drugs these days. Um, you know, we've like seems like we've legalized everything in DC based on just the the aroma uh, that that you get um, <laughs> um, walking down the street. So I guess like surprised it wasn't something else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, 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 uh, must have been somebody you know, nineteen eighties throwback or something. Right. Well, anyways, that that's fun stuff. Appreciate the the me letting you put uh, you letting me put you on the spot. So finally, Craig, where can people find you? Find Arbo. Um, where are you guys at? Uh, well, we're we're right on the Capitol in D.C. physically, so I'm sitting in the Capitol's right over there. Um, nice. We're on a old taco shop, uh, which is no longer in business. We've got the office space and there's a whole, we've, uh, a whole story about taco shops in our, in our headquarters, uh, office space, but, uh, uh, com. So goarbo.com, uh, is where we're at. And, and, uh, our, our emails are all just our first name at goarbo.com. So Craig at goarbo.com is me. Uh, happy to take an email or, you know, call us on the phone. Cause that's really like retro and fun for us to talk. Old school. Phone. Right. Right. So, um, uh, so that's where you can find us. And I appreciate you taking the time to get to know us a little bit today, Jeremy. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, this is, this is fun stuff. I mean, your, your background is, is fascinating and I need to talk to more people that are in DC that, that play a little bit of a different role. I got enough people from Houston and Midland and, and Denver and Calgary on this podcast. So, um, fun to discover you. I think your business is doing cool things and, um, appreciate having you on today, Craig. You have a, uh, have a good weekend, my man. Thank you, sir.